Good morning, I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text this morning for our message, so you can follow along in Isaiah uh, 1, verses 21 through 26. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares... The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get my relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Thank you, Alicia. Good morning, everyone. I feel like just popping out from behind. Sorry. <laughs> like, hey. My name is Eric, as Claudia already mentioned, and uh, really, really great to be here. Uh, really excited about going through the book of Isaiah. We're in week three of a series we're calling Uncommon Cause, and we're going through Isaiah chapter one. I love Isaiah. Uh, it's probably my favorite Old Testament book, and um, hopefully my excitement comes out uh, in the way that we dissect the passage today. Um, Isaiah 1 is really interesting because it's a series of messages, a series of sermons that Isaiah kind of preached to the nation of Judah. And so uh, we're going to go verse by verse through this one here today uh, just because Isaiah preached it and I don't want to just reinvent the wheel, uh, but um, I want to kind of do the text justice today. Before we get into the text, um, I want to share with you a story about um, teenage Claude Valdez, if I can do that. Uh, I got the microphone, so... Uh, pretty excited about this opportunity. <laughs> uh, if you don't know Claude very well, uh, he is a man of character, love him very much, and uh, proud to call him a friend. Um, he's always been that way. Uh, I wish I had some like secret story about him where he wasn't that way at one point in time, but he's always been that way. But if you know Claude, you know every once in a while he's a little spontaneous. And uh, last week he jumped a chair, I guess, just spontaneously and He's got bruises as a result. <laughs> uh, but as a teenager, uh, you know, as teenagers are, he was very spontaneous. And uh, one time we were invited to a graduation party. Uh, it was 30 miles away from my house. That's a critical piece of the story here. Um, it was in the 90s, so we didn't have cell phones. Uh, I had a car. It was pretty awesome. Uh, freedom and all that great stuff. Um, so it was right around this time of the year, uh, and Claude and I, we brought our baseball gear. We were playing catch and um, hitting the ball around and that kind of stuff. And as the party just kind of wound down, we thought, well, maybe it's time to leave, you know. Uh, and I don't remember all the details or the, the why, but uh, I drove and Claude picked up my set of keys, threw them in the air, and then hit it as hard as he could with a baseball bat, you know. And poof, this thing goes flying. And I was shocked. I was like, what is happening? What is going on right now? I was more like... Not annoyed necessarily, but come on, I have to go all the way and pick up these keys. And he's, he's like, why did I do that? And so he ran and grabbed the keys, and my car key was bent. And I was like, oh. Now think about it. Put yourself in my shoes. No cell phone or anything like that. Uh, 30 miles away from home. I can't just walk to, you know, to our neighbor's house or something. Uh, and Claude's, 
he's a problem solver. And so he's like, hey, you know what? I can fix this. And so puts it in his hands, straightens it out, and pops right off. Just, the key just snaps right in half. And I'm like, ooh, I'm a little bit nervous here, 30 miles away from home. You know, it's getting late in the day. I didn't know what to do. Uh, and so, you know, some of you in the room remember what you would have to do. You go over to somebody's house across the street from the park, knock on the door, ask if you can use a phone, and pray that somebody on the other end of the line is actually home, you know? Like, you can't just, like, assume that they're going to pick up. And so, uh, call my house, please be my mom, please be my mom, please be my mom. And it was my dad. Like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, great. So we had to wait for him to get the extra set of keys and drive the 30 miles to uh, come, you know, take us home or whatever it would be, get to give us the key. And it's pretty, pretty uh, devastating, but it's a great story. And I have more stories like that that uh, won't be part of an illustration. So if you ever, you know, need to know the, the dirt, let, let me know. <laughs> uh, but that brings me into the question that we have for today. Uh, a question that I'd love for us to ponder as we get into the text. The question is this, why is it so easy to break things? Why is it so easy to break things? You have a story about something that broke that you didn't expect to break. Uh, I'm sure you have a story of how something that you thought was going to be sturdy ended up breaking uh, and the implications of all of that. And uh, as I began to think about this question, uh, two things come to mind. In fact, those two things we can actually find in this passage of Scripture this morning. The first thing, which Claude so wonderfully illustrated for me, uh, is that we don't use things the way that they were intended to be used a lot of times, right? Uh, keys are not designed to be used as a baseball, and as a result, they break, right? And Isaiah chapter 1 is all about how the nation of Judah uses worship in a way that it was never intended to be used, they see the ritual uh, of worship. They see the motion of worship, uh, church attendance, if we can uh, put it in our language today, as a way to kind of placate God. Uh, and worship was never designed to be used in that way. The religious system breaks down quickly because it was never intended to be about that at all. So that's the first reason why things break so easily. But I think the second reason is also found in our text today, because sometimes things just never were designed to last in the first place. Think about buying a knockoff coach purse, for example. You buy the knockoff because it's not as expensive as the original. No one says, I could get the original because I have a crazy amount of money, or I could get a knockoff because it's way better. <laughs> I'm going to get the knockoff. No, you get it because it's cheaper, right? Uh, it's less expe expensive, and you don't expect it to last as long as the original coach purse. And so you're not too broken up when it doesn't last very long. You know what you're getting into if you get the knockoff. Uh, the reality is the people of Israel were putting all of their energy into a series of rituals uh, and a, a system of sacrifices that looked like the real deal, right? They looked like the motions were right, uh, but those sacrifices were never designed to produce fruit without the right heart behind them. I'll say it again. The ritual of worship was never designed to produce fruit without the right heart behind them. And so as we get the knockoff version of worship, things break down. They break down really, really quickly. And so Isaiah records how God looks out on the fabric of Judah's society uh, and sees brokenness where there was once beauty. 
they, were, they had the heart behind it at one time. In fact, the last couple of weeks of, of our series, we've been going through how at one time they had the heart behind worship, but something has changed. In fact, the first verse of our uh, a passage today says, the faithful city has become unfaithful. It doesn't take much to go from a spotless house to what looks like a rat's nest, right? <laughs> Isn't it amazing? You don't have to work very hard to mess up a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that our house is ever like that, but theoretically, that's the way it is, right? Uh, you work so hard cleaning for hours and hours and hours, and it seems like minutes. It's all undone, you know? You can blame kids if you have them, but it's all undone quickly. If you have kids or you have nieces and nephews, you understand it doesn't take long to go from doting on them to finding them really really annoying. <laughs> it doesn't take that much, at least for me anyway, you know? Like, oh, they're, they're great. And then all of a sudden, hey, it's time for bed, right? <laughs> Why don't you guys go to sleep? Um, I don't know if you can agree with me, but this one hits home in my heart. Weeks worth of dieting can be undone with a bag of Doritos, you know? It doesn't take much, does it, to go from uh, great, great things to brokenness in a hurry. Good things take time to cultivate. Good things take effort. They require uh, work. But it doesn't take much effort at all to break those good things. And here's what Isaiah uh, is saying. God actually speaking through Isaiah about the society that Judah is cultivating in the city of Jerusalem in particular. Kind of the, the example of the entire nation. And he says in verse 21, if we look there, it should be up on the screen as well. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged, past tense, in her, but now murders. Uh, if you've been at Centerway before, you may have heard that uh, our kids are going through the same uh, text as we are, and I want to let you know uh, that they're Language is a little bit different <laughs> uh, in this, just to let you know, put your mind at ease. Uh, but they are going through the same passage. They're talking about uh, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, right? But we learned from last week in verse 17 of chapter 1 that God desires the people of Judah to seek justice and to fight for the marginalized in society. And God is saying, that's what used to mark your identity, that you were faithful, that you had justice going through your streets, but now, the faithful city has become unfaithful. You were full of justice, but now you are murderers. Now, he says, that even though that's what used to mark them as the people of God, they've drifted, right? They've drifted from uh, that thing that, that was their identity. And now they had become unfaithful. The question that I have is, do you think that they set out to change their identity uh, as the faithful city? I don't think so. I don't think that they would uh, purposely say, you know what, this faithfulness is great, but I want to do something that's going to make me unfaithful. I think I'm going to make the decision right now to become unfaithful. Or I'm going to, you know, justice is great, but I want to make sure that we're known for our injustice. And so we're going to make that decision. No, they, they didn't set out to do that. They didn't purposely choose to walk away from God, much like Claude didn't purposely break uh, my key, you know. But it happened, right? When things aren't utilized in the way that they're created to be, they break easily, they break quickly. They, they tried to use the religious ritual to extort God into doing whatever it is that they wanted him to do. I kind of get the, the vision of them 
using worship, using their church attendance, using uh, the motions to kind of grab God's arm and twist it behind his back and say, ha ha, now you have to do what I want you to do. So their connection with God led to an inward desire. And God is saying, it used to be that you were connected to me in such a way that the people around you were affected. That the people around you that didn't have a voice, uh, you were their voice. The people around you that didn't have strength to do what they needed to do, you gave them strength. And so you encouraged the marginalized and you resourced them. But all of a sudden, something happened in you and that's changed. That's reversed. In fact, there's something that we're about to see in these next few verses that uh, I still see as a problem in our world today. It's a, it's a fallen condition that affects every single person ever born from the time of Isaiah, uh, even before, until this very moment right now. And it's this. I'm going to read it in my notes. We don't understand just how quickly a little contamination and a little compromise in our priorities will cause what matters most to break. I want to say it again. We don't understand just how quickly a little contamination and a little compromise in our priorities will cause what matters most to break. And what I mean by that can be found in the next verse, verse 22. Uh, this is one of the most challenging verses in all the passage for me. It says, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. This is a picture of what a little contamination and a little compromise can do. That first line, your silver has become dross, that's a picture of contamination. The metaphor Isaiah uses here is that because their attention had been pulled from justice and righteousness, what was pure was now impure. They were known for the purity that they presented to God, but something changed and now impurity marked them. They were still worshiping. They were still attending the feasts and the festivals. But rather than it leading to them fighting for justice like it once did, now sin had corrupted. And it was just a subtle shift, right, in their priority. But it transformed them. It transformed them from silver, from pure, to dross, impure. From faithful, pure, to a harlot, a whore, impure. Their identities were rocked. Their identities were changed. And it happens so fast, doesn't it? If we don't guard our heart, that sin that so easily entangles will contaminate and change us before we will ever realize it. You know, the, the silver that Judah had to offer in worship, I think about uh, the illustration of being like a, a clean and pure spotless vessel to kind of present to the Lord. That was Judah. Uh, but somehow it was suddenly worthless. It was worthless. The heart had been taken away. And God didn't see it as silver any longer, but worthless dross. Dross is the scum that forms on the surface of molten metal, molten silver, uh, and it's um, kind of filtered and skimmed away, right? It's useless. It's worthless. So that's a picture of contamination. Sin does that pretty quickly, pretty easily. Uh, and we don't say, we don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I'm going to sin today. And it's not going to be that big a deal. It's just going to be a little bit, but I'm definitely going to sin today. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. If we do think that, we probably don't use that kind of language, right? Uh, but those things that we do uh, that would be against the heart of God are things that will contaminate. And we think, hey, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. But before we know it, our silver has become dross. Now, the second part of that verse is what, is what really is uh, convicting for me. 
Uh, it says your best wine mixed with water. This is a, this is a metaphor that Isaiah uses um, to say that you used to be really, really passionate about something. But now it's watered down. Right? He's talking about how wine uh, watered down isn't as effective as it used to be. And he's using it in the, the analogy of a passion for something, a passion for justice, a passion for worship, a passion for God. Those things have become watered down in you because of sin, and all of a sudden it is diluted. It's not as effective as it used to be. You used to be so in love with God, but over time you compromise and that has led to this diluted version of worship. You used to be so uh, in love uh, with, with God, but over time sin has watered down that love for, for God. And even though it's still in you, it's a watered down version of what used to be so pure. On a micro level, we do this all the time here on this plane. We do it with uh, the potential in our work. We do it in our careers, our physical health, even in our relationships here on earth. And this watered down version of our potential serves to kind of break what was once so promising. It doesn't take very much to break what was so promising in our career or in our health or in our relationships. Just like that, though, we look back and we say, man, remember when? Remember when there was that passion there? Remember when our relationship was as good as it ever was? Remember when? What happened? What happened? Why do I get on the scale now and see the numbers a lot higher than they used to be? What happened? It was just a bag of Doritos, right? What happened? You know, no one during their wedding vow says, I vow to love you until I get bored. Right? No one says, I cannot wait to marry you. I will make you my priority right behind my career, right behind my hobbies, right behind my pursuit of happiness. But then after all that, then it's you. <laughs> then it's you, babe. I'll let you know. No. When we get married, we say, you're my priority. You're, I'm, I'm committed to you, right? And we don't say, hey, I'm committed to you now. I won't be committed to you later, but I'm committed to you now. Is that good enough? Because it's not good enough. Of course, it's not good enough. We compromise. We allow little things day in and day out to begin to water down our passions. Whatever area of our life, our best wine gets mixed with water. Sin does this. It contaminates us so that we no longer have the identity that we once did. And it forces us to compromise so that we're watered down versions of what could be so powerful. There's so much potential in your life. There's so much potential in your walk with God. There's so much potential in the life that you do, the life that you live around people that, uh, that are passionate about the things that you are. But when sin enters, it gets watered down. And, and that hits home for me. I remember a time where uh, I feel like, man, I could conquer anything. Like, hey, God, tell me what to do and I'll do it. There's been times in my life where I say, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this, God. Sin contaminates us. In other words, sin so easily breaks the potential in us to make a life-changing impact on the world. And I know that I'm not just talking to Christians in the room this morning, but if you are a Christian, I want you to go back in your mind to when you were most passionate about God. I hope that it's right now, <laughs> this moment. Yes, this season was centered away. But if it's not, I want to know what happened. What happened 
in your relationship with God? What watered down your love and your joy and your desire? I would suspect that you'd be able to put a finger on it. But if you're not, you might just say, man, I'm just tired. Life happened, right? Life happened. All of a sudden, here I am, you know, five years later or 10 years later or 25 years later or whatever the case would be. And, and life is hard and life is tiring. And the truth of the matter is what we're really saying is it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to break what is a good thing. So what we're talking about here is much more than a broken diet, aren't we? Much more than uh, being unhappy at work. Isaiah sets a much higher goal for our lives than what's on the scale. And here's how verse 23 puts it. Uh, it's pretty interesting. He says, your princes and rebels and companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Your princes are rebels and companions of Thebes. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Wow. Their capacity to lead in society has been broken by sin. And who does Isaiah say suffers the most? He says the marginalized suffer the most. The very people who need passionate, God-loving leaders to fight on their behalf, they're the ones that suffer most. You might say, you know what? I'm not as passionate as I once was, but look at my bank account. Things are okay. I mean, look, God's taking care of us. Family's healthy and happy and, you know, like, is it really that big a deal? And what Isaiah is saying, it's not just about you. Your worship is not just about what you can get out of it. Because if it is, then we're just like the, the nation of Judah that's placating God with the way that we just show up to church. And we say, you know what? I feel good about you, God. And I think you feel good about me too because there's food on the table. And what God is saying is that as you draw closer to me, your heart will become enveloped in my heart. And my heart is for the fatherless and it's for the widow. My heart is for the one that can't speak for themselves. And as your heart begins to draw near to mine, my, my loves become your loves. My passions become your passions. And the people that are affected aren't just you and me. It's the, the people with no voice. It's the people with no power, no strength in themselves to say, I can do this on my own. Over the first two weeks of this Uncommon Cause series, we've seen how the people of Judah kind of have gone through the motions of worship and didn't have the heart themselves. Now their worship and their love for God should cause them to act on behalf of the ones that can't act for themselves. But they're still serving their own passions. They're serving their own purposes. And God hates this. There are so many places in Scripture where God commands the, the people, uh, his people, to care for those that can't care for themselves and that this should mark us as worshipers. But instead, that sin has contaminated and caused compromise. And being unwilling to roll up their sleeves and heal what's broken in society, God holds them accountable for that brokenness. It's a scary thought. God holds them accountable for this brokenness. Isaiah uh, verse 24. Scary verse. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Boy, it's a little scary. I will get relief from my enemies. Are you telling me, God, that uh, 
just going through the motions of worship makes me an enemy of yours? Are you telling me that not fighting for the fatherless and the widow makes me one of your foes? Scary, isn't it? It's scary. Think about that. Being unwilling to do something about brokenness in your world will put you on the side of God's enemies. It's not a place that I want to be. And I can't stand up here telling you, I've never been in that place. Too bad for you. Whoa, I hope there's hope for you, right? No, I've been in that place. We've all been in that place where it's been about us. None of us have come into this room saying, I have perfectly executed my relationship with God in such a way that all the brokenness in my world is healed, right? No, we all have brokenness in our lives. We all have brokenness in ourselves. And God, God doesn't say, ah, because you're all broken, eh, don't even worry about it. Yeah, you're going to be okay. Don't even worry about it. He says, guess what? Because of sin, I have to get relief from my enemies and avenge myself and my foes. If we understand the weight of that, we might be first tempted to say, whoa, wait, wait a second. I'm not the cause of the brokenness. I love God, and sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm a really good person. I even go to church, right? It's summertime, and here I am, right? So, God, I can't be your enemy. Uh, you don't have to go that hard on me. I think what we're really saying when we're imperfect people we're saying, I love God. I just don't want to deal with the drama and messiness that broken people inevitably bring with them, right? Including yourself. Now, I'm, I'm broken, and I just don't want to deal with the brokenness in myself because it's messy. It's messy to deal with it. It's messy to kind of work through it and walk through it. Uh, that coworker that I know that God's uh, talking to me about, that's just really hard. They're, it's a very messy situation or family member or whatever it would be that God is speaking to your heart about right now. We're saying it's difficult. It's messy. I don't know if it's worth it because I, I know the implications of that. Uh, in the early 2000s uh, in Pasadena, California, there was um, a man who had his car broken into and stolen by two teenagers. And uh, it wouldn't be that big a deal to this guy, except for it was the early 2000s, and in the car, there was a laptop. And I don't know if you remember back then, if you had a laptop in the early 2000s, it was a pretty big deal, an expensive piece of equipment. Uh, everything else was a desktop, and so it cost a lot of money. Uh, and this guy was concerned that the cops weren't going to be too, too concerned about uh, his vehicle and his laptop. And so he told the cops that these teenagers were armed. They were armed and dangerous. Uh, and so the police found the vehicle, found these guys, and uh, they realized that the gig was up. And so as teenagers, I'm sure they were scared. So they ran out of their car and ran into this wooded area. Uh, and as the cops began to chase them, uh, they thought that one of the teenagers was reaching for what was a gun, shot and killed the teenager. Now, it turns out he did not have a gun on him. He was unarmed. Um, however, the man who called the cops was charged with second-degree manslaughter. He was, he was charged for the death of this teenage boy because he falsified the account that he had a gun just so that he could get his laptop back sooner than later or whatever it would be. And as a result of the, of the way that he lived, he was on the, the hook for this teenager's death. It's a terrible story. Sorry to bring the mood down here a little bit. Uh, but what, I, what I'm trying to say 
in this, uh, this story here is that the poem in Isaiah uh, reminds us that if worship does not lead us to restorative action in our own world, then we're faced with uh, the accountability that God is saying in this verse. We're held accountable for the brokenness that we see. We're, if I can say it as, as harshly as this, we're charged with second-degree manslaughter. If we look at the brokenness in our world and, and the, the relationship that we have with the Father causes us to say, no, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to walk away from this. Yikes. That's really daunting, isn't it? It's really daunting. We can't fix every broken part of our own lives, let alone fix the brokenness in the world around us. Is God really saying that we're responsible uh, for the devastation, the tragedy, all of those kind of things? Is he really going to bring the hammer down uh, on us for not doing things uh, perfectly with our one and only life? It sounds a lot like that. What it actually is saying is reminding us, who here hasn't turned a blind eye to injustice in order to get to a meeting on time? Who here hasn't looked the other way when there was brokenness in our world so that we could get home after a long day of work, right? All of us have. The text is, is asking us to look at ourselves and not just point the finger at the nation of Judah and say, whoa, those guys were terrible. They should be marked as faithful, but they're unfaithful. They should have justice in them, but they don't. Wow, too bad for them. The text shows us that, hey, it's like a mirror. That's in me too. There's brokenness around me as well. In fact, there's brokenness in me and I can't do a thing about it. I've tried. I've gone to people. I've, I've dieted. I've, I've done the work that I think I should do and it's left me seeming even more broken. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever had that experience where you say, listen, I've done everything that the experts told me I had to do and I feel worse <laughs> than, I start, than when I started? It looks like God is going to have to deal with us. Verse 24 says he's going to get relief from his enemies and avenge himself of his foes. He has the right to take vengeance on us because as we look at ourselves, we realize, wow, we are guilty of second degree manslaughter. We are guilty. We haven't done things perfectly. We've misused our connection with God. We haven't let the heart of God envelop our own heart and so now, things are, are breaking down all around us. Well, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully, we've already read. Alicia's already read verse 25 for us. We're going to read verse 25 now. It says this, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. This is a, an illustration of reversing what has been done in verse 22. I will turn my hand against you. This is what being surprised by mercy looks like. We know what we're supposed to get. We know the conviction placed before us that we are guilty. And we know that we deserve punishment. But all of a sudden, God says, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with light. I will reverse the impurity that we saw in verse 22. I will remove your alloy. This is such an interesting uh, verse or line in the original Hebrew because that first line, I will turn my hand against you, uh, 
in the Hebrew language is akin to saying, I will backhand you. So the, the imagery is Isaiah is saying, I will raise up my hand to backhand you, but instead of punishing you and making it hurt, this will provide mercy. It's not the idea of it's going to hurt, but hey, it's for your own good. It's I will raise my hand to you and I will heal you. I won't hurt you. There's a, there's a reversal here. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to take away your impurity. Instead of being backhanded or punishment, uh, punished, excuse me, God instead chose to raise his hand and purify, to reverse the language that verse 22 uh, had contaminated and compromised. We all know that we're contaminated. We all know where we have compromised. But God's promise in Isaiah uh, verse 25 is that there will be a reversal of that. Something I should have said earlier and something we, should, we may have uh, said in weeks past is that this whole chapter and this section in particular is a poem. It's a, it's a very beautiful poem in the Hebrew, a lot of meter and rhyme. And so it would stick with uh, the people of Judah. In fact, potentially this section here was, was a song that was sung uh, or a poem that would have been memorized and, and uh, quoted over and over again. Uh, God says, what you did to become impure, what you did to become unfaithful, now I, w- I will do to cause you to become pure again. I will do the work. He says that we do deserve punishment, yes, but I will give you cleansing. You should have been sentenced for your brokenness. Instead, the result is that you're offered healing. This is our God, isn't it? This is our God. This is a clear case for our guilt and instead he pardons. Now, if you're tracking with us, you might think, wow, this is incredible news, but it leaves us with a theological problem. The theological problem is this. Can God just sweep sin under the rug? Like, there are fatherless and widows um, dying. (laughs) You know, people that can't fight for themselves, they're falling by the wayside. Can God just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. Let's sweep it under the rug. In fact, no. The answer would be no. He can't do that. That would be an incongruence of his own character and personality. Theologically, we're posed with an issue here. Doesn't he have to punish sin? If he doesn't have to punish sin, then why do teenagers get shot when, they, when they're not holding a gun? Why do uh, orphans that can't fight for themselves die of starvation? Why is there such tragedy and, and evil in the world, right? It sounds like if God could just undo it, then, then why doesn't he, right? There's a problem with that. Injustice does have to be punished. There is consequence for our sin. And there would be no punishment for the brokenness uh, that we turned a blind eye to if God wasn't uh, fair and just and holy. But because of the holiness of God, he can't allow the brokenness in our world to go unpunished. And so he, he shows us what it looks like for that to happen in the final verse, verse 26 here. He says, judgment for sin has to take place. And in verse 26, he says, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. There will be a restoration for the judges and the counselors of the city, a way for society's leaders to have restorative action take place on their behalf. 
And what Isaiah does is he looks out on the brokenness of his society and he sees a Messiah who would be wounded for their transgressions and bruised for their iniquities. Isaiah sees Jesus, the Son of God, who would willingly take the raised hand of punishment for our watered down passions and our blind eye to brokenness. As we go through Isaiah, uh, chapter 2 uh, through the, into the 60s, we see a Messiah being promised who would come, who would undo the brokenness that he's setting up here in Isaiah chapter 1. And it's because of him that when we let something contaminate us, there's forgiveness for that. It's because of him that when we have a watered down passion for justice, there's mercy. There's mercy for us. We can't perfectly leverage our love for God and solve every problem of brokenness that we see in the world. But there is one that could. His name is Jesus. In fact, right as Jesus began his public ministry, uh, it, was, uh, it was marked by him opening up the scroll of Isaiah and he turned to a passage in Isaiah chapter 61 that's linked uh, to the prophet's point right here. So Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, it should be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says this, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's so good. It's because of Jesus that we have the ability to see what is broken in us and, and around us and then to take action about it. Without Jesus' work on our behalf, we're left with judgment for our brokenness and attempt to heal the brokenness of our world on our own and in our own strength. But Jesus has both taken your brokenness and has proclaimed good news to the poor so that God's mercy can lead you to join in the restoration process of the society that he has placed you in. The book of Acts says it's no accident that you live in the place that you live and the time that you live. And it's like our worship is designed to kind of give us fresh eyes uh, for the one who is broken around us. It's like our worship is designed to, to envelop the heart of God so that our hearts are changed as well. And what God loves, suddenly we love. And what God hates, suddenly we hate. And the brokenness inside of us and inside of our world, our society, can be changed as a result of the power that God would give to us through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Now, one of the things that we love to say here at Centerway is that the, the text requires something of us. We can't just look at a text like Isaiah chapter 1 and say, whoa, that's interesting. Let's go get burgers, right? Uh, it is it requires something of us. And we're about to go into a time of song and a reflection on what that may look like. But the question that I want you to apply to your world this morning looks like this. Seeing the brokenness in and or around you, what restorative action is God asking you to take? As we look out on the brokenness either in ourselves or in the world around us, 
What restorative action, that's the highlighted phrase there, is God asking you to take? You know, here's something that I'm really guilty of, and maybe you are too. I'm guilty of saying, wow, there's a problem, there's a brokenness in our world. I really wish my mayor would do something about that. I really wish my government official, that's why we we put him in office, right? I wish he would do something about that. But what the text is saying is, God says, you do something about that. If it's passionate, if you're passionate about that, you do something about it. You know why? Because I'm passionate about it. If God is passionate about it, the closer we get to his heart, the more passionate we'll be about those things. Or we say, you know, someone with more money should spend money on that problem. No, God says, it's not about money. It's about the passion to do something about it. It's about the power that's leveraged in our relationship with God for the one who's broken. The answer to whatever this question is, uh, the answer that you may have will depend on your proximity to God too, won't it? If you've known God for a long time, if your relationship has, has, has grown and you're taking steps in the right direction, maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm close with God, but my worship doesn't cause me to act restoratively. My worship kind of makes me feel good and then I just go about my week singing those songs. Maybe for you, you say, I do know God, but I'm kind of in the place where I'm just going through the motions with God. I, I kind of do the same thing over and over, in and out, day in and day out. Maybe you're far from God and maybe you've tried everything there is to try to heal the brokenness in your own life, in your own world. And you never realize that God loves you so much that instead of the punishment that you deserve, he's extending a hand to heal you. And today your next step is to draw closer to the one, to that God who loves you. Whatever it is, I would, I would ask you to allow uh, this worship time that we're about to engage in, the song time, to be a time of reflection and connection with God and then let his spirit speak to you about how it is that you should have. Can we bow our heads and just close our eyes for a moment as we prepare our hearts for that? I'm going to pray and we're going to spend some time in song. Heavenly Father, this is a, a heavy text today. This is a text that would require something of us. Lord, we understand full well the implications of mercy. (laughs) That we deserve something that you are withholding from us, Lord God. We deserve punishment. We deserve brokenness. We deserve to walk in the results of of the poor decisions and choices that we have made. But instead, we see in this text today, God, that you extend mercy. God, that you skim off our dross. You make us pure because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, Jesus. And God, we want to uh, not stay where we are as a result, but God, we want to head in the right direction. So would you speak to our hearts and our minds today? God, would you allow us in this moment to draw closer to you than we ever have, to remember our first love and to become so passionate again, Lord God, that whatever has uh, diluted our passions would be evaporated in this moment in your presence. We love you, Lord, and invite you to speak to us in a fresh and a new way. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name.